This is the What Now Podcast. We need to learn how to internalize that or else we will be in this trying to do what others tell you or pressure you to do. The idea that, oh, now I've blown it. Now I'm no longer going to be worthy to somebody in the future. Those are ideas that are very destructive and undermine your ability to respect yourself and be kind to yourself. So the way to teach confidence is to really emphasize the idea that you have parents in heaven who know you and love you. Also, the best way to feel good about yourself is to be true to yourself. Be true to the best in you. Respect the things that you want and desire for your life. Take them seriously. Don't ever throw them away to get somebody else's approval. That will undermine you always. So it's like actually teaching that confidence comes through an honest respect for who you are and for the best in you and the best desires that you have. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss topics surrounding cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing for our church community. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife about what causes sexual dissatisfaction in relationships and how to get out of negative patterns that leave both partners feeling unfulfilled. Dr. Finlayson Fife also shares how to productively reawaken suppressed sexuality, leading to more fulfilling and trusted intimate relationships. Today I'm here with Jennifer Finlayson Fife, and we're going to be talking about a sensitive topic that affects many women in our church culture. But before we begin, I'd like to invite you, Jennifer, just to tell us a little bit about yourself so listeners can get to know you better. Well, I grew up in Burlington, Vermont, and I was one of eight children and grew up in the church. And then when I graduated from high school, I went to BYU and studied psychology and women's studies there and then served the mission in Spain and then went to do my master's and PhD in counseling psychology in Boston. And so I met my husband there. And eventually, after I finished my schooling, we moved to Chicago, where we have raised our kids and where we still live. And so anyway, I run a practice there. So I'm a therapist, coach, instructor, and the focus of my work is with LDS clients. So I do a lot of work on helping people to improve their marriages, improve their relationships in general, including their relationship with themselves, and also how that relates to their sexual development and helping people create more intimate and happy marriages. Thank you for that introduction, because that it ties in perfectly. I mean, today we are talking about a sensitive topic. In our church culture, women are taught to be virtuous and chaste and to respect their bodies, which has caused many women to suppress their sexuality, making it difficult for them to embrace sexual intimacy when they get married. It's a big problem with a lot of kids. And even some of my own friends, when they got married, they just were not prepared for that. Let's just start off by talking about how can we teach the youth of the church the importance of being chaste without creating this guilt and shame around sexuality? Yeah, it's great. I mean, my dissertation research was on this topic with LDS women in particular. So I was interested in looking, interviewing women who'd grown up in the church and understanding when women got married, they had what I call this sense of sexual agency. And that is that they felt like they could 
be at peace with their sexuality and create a sexual relationship that they felt good about. And most of the women struggled and a percentage of the women did not. And the thing that my research demonstrated is the women who transitioned happily had a strong sense early on that even before they married, long before they married, that the fact of their sexuality was a good thing. Like they understood that they wanted to wait until marriage. They understood that it was something that it mattered how you related to it. So they took it seriously, but they felt happy and even excited about the fact of being a sexual being. So they had that piece. And then really importantly, the women who thrived, and I think this is probably true for everyone. So I'll I'll answer your question in a second on this, but they also had a strong sense of self. That is, they had a strong sense that what they wanted in life mattered, that they had value. They didn't put themselves underneath their husbands. They didn't make themselves less than or the fact of having desires less than, less important. So they weren't putting themselves into this needless, wantless category. And so that sense of being an equal to their spouse and that sexuality was a good thing, even though it mattered to wait, those two beliefs seem to really facilitate their easy transition. And I don't mean like they had everything figured out on day one, but they didn't have a sense of fear and anxiety. And what a lot of women did that didn't do well would, would sort of see their sexuality as a dangerous thing, suppress it. And then they thought of marriage as being when you serve your husband's sexual needs. And so those meanings made sex be sometimes physically painful, often emotionally painful, but never a place of joy or freedom or happiness. So to get to your question, I think that when I was teaching the young women, and I really focused on the question of their desire. Now, just the importance of desire in their lives and what did they ultimately want? And young women, like, for example, when I was teaching, I'd have them journal or write things down. But when they would share they would often talk about wanting to wait until marriage, wanting the context of a committed, loving relationship, but then sometimes would feel pressured by either the romantic partners they were with or friends to step outside of that. And so I actually think when you facilitate both the meaning that sexuality is a wonderful and good part of life, or that it can be, I should say it like that, And so how you relate to it matters, respecting it in yourself, not being afraid of it, not thinking it's bad because those feelings are there, but also being respectful to others through it. And that's part of that context of commitment and fidelity, but also respectful of your own desires. So one of the things that the women in my research did well was that they took their own desires seriously, including not kissing a guy they didn't want to kiss just because he thought he should be entitled to it because he'd taken her to dinner or something like that. They took themselves seriously. And so I guess the the short answer, I feel like I'm giving you a very long answer, but the short answer is that you want to not teach fear, but importance, importance of commitment, and to learn how to respect the gift that God's given you, respect others through it, and to take seriously that you are ultimately the chooser and you need to see yourself that way. 
because when we frame it just in the frame of fear and compliance, it drives two negative effects, which is either suppression or compulsion. And what I hear you saying too is confidence. Like these women who enjoy sex or feel comfortable with sex, they can own it. They're confident in who they are. What about these kids who aren't confident? (laughs) Well, part of it is what happens sometimes is kids that aren't confident, they maybe are growing up in homes that can be critical or controlling. They will often then feel this sense like I have to earn my lovability either by obeying the commandments, but it's fear driven or by conforming to what my boyfriend wants me to do. So they're often in this kind of external locus of control and trying to earn it, which sadly often means they will betray their own values. Does that make sense? So that desire to get the confidence from outside interferes. That's a hard one too, because we're in such a sexualized culture online, on social media, on everything, like show more skin what are you going to give the guy if you're going out? Maybe he won't like you if you don't give something up. And there's a lot of pressure. And then I think once the kids cave in, it kills their confidence. And they're like, oh, I already blew it. Like, dang, this guy doesn't like me unless I'm like hooking up with him or whatever it is. And I think that just eats away, chips away at their confidence. And then it has the opposite effect. So I think one of the cultural elements that is somewhat dangerous, but we don't understand it to be dangerous often is this deep external referencing. So that is to say, no guy's going to want you if you're not the virginal unchewed gum or this kind of idea that you have to prove to others through your compliance, through your purity, because it doesn't teach this internal moral compass that we need. And our own relationship with God is to facilitate that inner reference, that inner integrity. And so when we teach that external, that's not terrible for the very beginning stages of our moral development. We need that when we're very young, but we need to learn how to internalize that or else we will be in this trying to do what others tell you or pressure you to do. The idea that, oh, now I've blown it. Now I'm no longer going to be worthy to somebody in the future. Those are ideas that are very destructive and undermine your ability to respect yourself and be kind to yourself. So the way to teach confidence is to really emphasize the idea that you have parents in heaven who know you and love you. And even if your own parents haven't been as capable of showing you your worthiness as you need, it still remains true. Like that's one of our most powerful theological understanding. But then also that the best way to feel good about yourself is to be true to yourself. Be true to the best in you. Respect the things that you want and desire for your life. Take them seriously. Don't ever throw them away to get somebody else's approval. That will undermine you always. That's a good point. Yeah. So it's like actually teaching that confidence comes through an honest respect for who you are and for the best in you and the best desires that you have. And to do otherwise will undermine that compass that we all need. And that's interesting. I want to unpack this a little bit. So some women, they get involved with sexual intimacy in their teens and 20s, and then they kind of quote repent, and then they close off their sexuality to avoid getting into trouble again so they can get married in the temple or whatever it is. 
And then it creates this negative association with sex and sin, and they can't seem to get past the negative association when they get married. Then it creates this really hard conflict in their personal relationships. How do they navigate that? Yeah, I've seen quite a bit of that in my practice where what we often do is we conflate sexuality and sin, like one and the same thing. And this is just even to kind of address your first question a little more. We don't want to do that when we're teaching youth about sexuality. A lot of us have the idea like, oh my goodness, my adolescent is starting to have sexual feelings. Now their soul is in danger. And that's just really not the way I see it. I see it as that's God's gift. We're all sexual beings. And I'm not going to deny that this isn't a powerful part of ourselves. But when we make it one in the same, like a lot of times when we're talking about temptation and sin, everybody knows it's code for sexual behavior, not being unkind to your friend or your neighbor. So the problem with that is it makes us so afraid of sexuality that we either like, okay, I'm going to be sexual, but am I doing in a way that I feel good about that's consistent with what I believe, or I'm going to shut the whole thing off and be good. And I think it's the latter. Right. A lot of people do that. So they have this sort of foray into their sexuality, but then they shut the whole project down because they want to be good. And oftentimes these are people that don't feel good about who they are. I don't mean it because they sinned. I mean, sometimes people who as adolescents are going against what they have learned are sometimes seeking for validation. They're seeking to feel they're enough. They haven't yet found that in their either their family or within themselves. And then because they think, no, I'm not enough. And now there's even more proof because I've sinned, to use that framing. Then they're like, I don't really want to be known sexually. So not only am I afraid of sexuality, I don't want to really be known in this way. I don't know that I am enough. So it's another way of limiting how intimate a marriage can be. Because when we don't feel good about ourselves, we don't actually want intimacy. So how can they get out of that headspace to make it a positive in their relationship? Well, a lot of my courses are about helping people to understand some of the false traditions that they've received so they can think through it in a wiser way, in a way that opens up possibilities in their lives. But for me, if I were working with somebody individually on that, is really looking at what was that, I would be wanting to understand why are they shutting it down? And let's go with the hypothesis. And I have been thinking about like, let's say they've shut it down because they think this is equivalent to sin. And this is also a way to protect themselves from being knowable. I would be really challenging that idea with them that first of all, that they're unworthy of love and unworthy of being known. And also that they can choose to make sexuality a good thing in their lives if they are resolved to love and be loved through it. That sex isn't good or bad. Sex is, its value is determined by how we're in relationship to it and what we're creating with it. Well, it seems like in general, sexual relationships are kind of identified as the male dominant And the men are usually more engaged and more excited and more demanding of it. And the women seem more compliant. I mean, that seems the kind of the stereotype and maybe even the reality. Yeah, definitely the stereotype. I do talk a lot about these high desire and low desire dynamics that happen in couples. And certainly there 
are a significant number of people where the woman is the higher desire person and she's partnered with someone who's not that interested in sex. And that can be even doubly painful because there is this sense that not only am I not wanted, but we're both defective because it's supposed to be where my husband is in pursuit of me. But yes, I do think we socialize in that direction. Like the way that young men get taught is more the assumption that, of course, you're sexual, right? Now, you can do all kinds of damage with it. That's the men's message, right? But there isn't a sense that masculinity and sexuality are incongruent, just that sexuality and goodness are incongruent. Where women get more the idea that sexuality and femininity don't go together, right? That's not the idealized feminine is pure and untouched and non-sexual. And so a lot of women and men get the false idea that good marital sexuality is the woman serving her husband sexually. It's just so bad. It just creates so much suffering. How do we get out of that negative dysfunctional mindset. Part of why I'm saying it is to help people recognize these messages because they're so implicit sometimes that well-intentioned people are perpetuating them without recognizing that they are meanings that undermine marriages. And we want good marriages in our faith, right? But these ideas of serving and servicing are the wrong model. They aren't congruent with a model of intimacy. Intimacy is dependent on the idea that men and women are equal that they stand on the same ground and they may have different proclivities and capacities and intelligence, right? But, and gifts, but they are partners, not the idea that the man is above the woman and the woman is earning her keep through offering her sexuality. That's an idea that we've often sold as gospel, but is actually a cultural idea. I kind of borrow from the larger culture, from Victorianism and it interferes with, I mean, you may serve your husband's sexuality and accommodate, but it creates resentment on both sides. There's this sense of, for the man, I never feel wanted. For the higher desire man, if that's the way it is, I never feel desired. The woman's like, how much do you need? I feel like you, it's all you think about. You know? So yeah. it creates these demands and a power struggle between a man and a woman that defines it. How do you diffuse the power struggle if that exists? I'm sure there are tons of people listening saying, how do I fix this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I will do my best here to give a short answer. Of course, like so much of my materials are the answer to this. It's helping people to see that they have to engage within themselves and their sense of identity, the sense of self differently. They have to see that they've created a hierarchy in their marriage. Now, it doesn't just go where the man's on top sexually and the woman's underneath. There's, there's other hierarchies in that same marriage where the woman's the virtuous spiritual one and she's superior to her hedonistic, natural man husband. Right? So there's, you, people find their ways to get on top of each other psychologically and feel superior, but they are always at the core of power struggles. And so what I one of the kind of core ideas that I'm teaching in, in my materials is the idea that marriage has to be about partnership of equals. So I help people to see how they're playing out one up and one down dynamics and our dependency on validation to feel good about ourselves. And this is very human, but until we can see how we're trying to get it through our marriage, we can't stop doing it and start creating something less ego-driven and more soul-driven. 
So it's really kind of identifying maybe reliance on the relationship to make you feel validated and loved and kind of removing that piece so you can be validated and loved aside from the relationship. That's right. You're not, because if you're looking to your spouse to make you feel good about you, which most of us are when we get married, most of us are thinking I'm locking someone in that now has just promised God they have to love me no matter what I do, you know, okay. Dysfunctional. Right, so most of us do that (laughs) rather than I just promise God, I'm going to love this person even when they disappoint me, even when they make me feel insufficient, right? Even when I feel alone, that I'm still going to find the courage and the capacity in me to really care about another person. I don't mean serve them, okay? That's the model that I don't care for but that I will love them, that I will address my limitations to be a better friend and partner to this person. But yes, you're pointing to exactly the right thing. Like if around sex, for example, let's say the high desire person is often saying, have sex with me so that I feel good about me, right? Do that. You're supposed to, you're my wife. Okay. You're my spouse. Who else can I get it from? You should. So we put a lot of pressure to get that accommodation and that yield but it doesn't, it makes the lower desire person feel resentful and feel used and annoyed. But sometimes the lower desire person will do it because they're trying to get the validation of being needed, the validation of being, I'm the good one because I give you what you want. And so I'm necessary to you. These are both ways of trying to get a sense that you are sufficient in the marriage, but then it's never about desire or sharing who you are through your sexuality. That's a great point. Because the thing is, that's tricky is these, yeah, women feel like they have to objectify themselves or men, it can go both ways. And then they just feel like they're trying to get their confidence through the physical relationship when it's so much more than that. Exactly. And yeah, human beings are good at using each other in the name of love to feel good. So how can the higher desired partner get what they need without making the other partner feel compromised or vulnerable? So first of all, I really challenge the idea that we have sexual needs. And the reason why I do is that a need is something that you literally must have to survive. Okay. Now, sexuality is a part of the good life. Being desired, having a rich sexual relationship is definitely a part of thriving. But when people come and say, I need sex, and this is an idea that we've allowed ourselves to believe about men, right? First of all, there'd be a lot of dead people at church. (laughs) We actually need it. (laughs) So we don't need it. Now, do we want it? Yes. Do we want to be loved and desired? Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with wanting it. But what a lot of times people are doing in the high desire position, and this isn't always the case, but they're often not being loving, they're trying to get loved. So it's not like I want you so much as do you want me? Oh, that's interesting. And the low desire person can feel it and doesn't like it because they feel like they've got to prop up the ego of the high desire person and they've got to manage their sense of self. And so like just to do it in the opposite direction where the man's the lower desire, well, I've worked with couples where the woman's the high desire, but wants a lot of validation and approval in many aspects of her life. And the husband likes sex or he likes pleasure, but he doesn't want to have to service the wife's neediness all the time in sex. So it makes him not want it, not because 
he doesn't like sexual pleasure, but he doesn't want sex to be connected to propping up the ego of the high desire person. So a lot of low desire people out there don't necessarily have an issue with sex, but they don't like the sense of having to lose themselves in the sexual interaction in managing the high desire neediness. So how can they have this connection without each other losing themselves, right? Like a positive, equal connection that's really about the interaction. Right. I was just driving home before this interview, and I was listening to a book by Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic priest, I think, at least a Catholic theologian. And he was just saying something like, we can't be in honest conversation with anyone unless we are in a true peace with ourselves. Now, that seems like a pretty bold statement because I think a lot of us think we're in honest conversation and yet not at peace with ourselves. But I think what he's pointing to is the same idea, and I think this is absolutely true in sexual intimacy, that when sexual intimacy is its best, you're sharing yourself. You're loving through your sexuality. You desire the person not for reinforcement of you, but you really value and love this person, and you want to be close to them and share your most intimate self with them and be loved in return, right? So that's a model of sharing and knowing and being known, not extracting a sense of self through the other. So maybe when they're trying to have an interaction, the higher desired spouse would just, I just want to be with you, validating that instead of my needs and what I need. 100%. When high desire people lead with needs, I'm like, you're going to be celibate for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to die. Because you're killing the energy in which desire thrives. You're killing the ecosystem in which it thrives. If it's like, I like you. I mean, a lot of women sometimes are low desire more than men because women are letting someone into their body. It's a much more vulnerable position from a biological and psychological point of view. So women have just as much sexual capacity as men do, but they're pickier about the sex they want to have. That is to say, they're often mapping at a much bigger level, is this person invested in me? And from a psychobiological point of view, it makes a lot of sense that women are asking that question. Does he want me or does he just want sex with me? And so the question of, am I wanted? Am I known? This is often what women are saying. Like, I want to feel like you care about what I do all through the day, not just me when it's late at night and you have your sexual needs. And so that, the way you just framed it, Mary Alice, is very much on point, which is, I like you. I want you. I know you. And the person on the other side knows it's true because you can see it in the day to day. That is, they're invested in my life. They value me. They care about my well-being, not just as it serves them. And positive interactions too. Like, yeah, the day-to-day helping out with the dishes or running an errand or picking the kids up, like all those things show you're supporting. That's right. You're loving and caring. They're not about earning sex. They're about, I'm invested in your well-being. I care about you. And I think when the marriages that thrive, because so much of my work is about teaching people how to grow out of the validation pursuit into more capacity to love and be known. That's when really good sex is. It's not about positions. It's not about frequency even. It's about heart. It's about a sense of aliveness that's in the couple. 
And we have to grow ourselves up to be capable of creating that out of our validation dependency. Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) That is totally right. I mean, when you break it down like that, I mean, that is, that's the essence of what it is. Totally. That connection and you feel yeah, supported and loved. And you're sharing that with someone you trust and feel supported and loved by not to get validated, but you feel like you have a partnership. Yeah, well, exactly. And it's good judgment to say like, yeah, it feels like a good idea to be open hearted and sexually open to my spouse. He knows me, he loves me, he cares about me. When those questions are more uncertain, it's easy to shut down. So maybe the angle for the more sexual spouse is to make the connection on like, I want to connect with you as a person because I care about you. Not like I'm, you know, horny and I need to have this interaction. Absolutely. You can be a very invested partner and still have a spouse who doesn't want to open up and doesn't want to deal with their anxieties, right? So it doesn't mean if the higher desire person is really offering something very good that the lower desire person will necessarily confront their anxieties and step into the relationship more deeply. However, I think a lot of times people think they're more capable of love than they really are. That even if they serve their husband, quote unquote, they're not necessarily loving him. They may still be just trying to tell themselves that they're good by what they're doing rather than they really do have enough self to be able to really value and care for another person, right? So, or the high desire person may think, well, yeah, I'm totally fine with sex and I'm totally comfortable with intimacy, but they don't see that what they're actually doing is extracting from the low desire person. So again, a lot of my courses are trying to help people wake up to themselves because often the stories we tell ourselves, we think we're more loving and more invested and an easier person to be with than we actually are. So if you are the wife or the husband and you're the low desired person and they just keep coming to you for interaction, what would be the response to help that other partner understand what's going wrong? So if you're the low desired person, you want to really think honestly about why. Now, sometimes the low desired person is thinking about a response that justifies their lack of interest as opposed to really thinking about it in order to create higher interest. So a lot of us who may have anxieties about sex are thinking, look, when you don't help and you don't do this, it's all justified why I don't want to be here because another part of them doesn't want the risk and the exposure of an intimate marriage. But if your goal is saying like, I really want a good sexual relationship with you, but I feel sometimes that you just are so invested in your own gratification that you aren't really with me sexually. I feel like I disappear when I'm with you, if that's true. I'm not sure. I mean, depends on, of course, whatever the situation is, but some clients have talked about feeling consumed or overtaken, or that's more just you're gratifying your needs that you feel entitled to, but you aren't really with me sexually. And so I like sex, but I don't like the sex we're having, but you're speaking to what would make it better. Now, these are hard conversations because In sexuality, it's so central to our sense of self that oftentimes that's why couples get stuck because you have to stabilize yourself to hear true things and deal with them, (laughs) right? And sometimes we don't want to and we want to just justify ourselves against the other person. 
But if your goal is to create better, then it's really important to talk about your genuine experience of what's interfering with better so that you can create better. I really like what you were just saying, your point about how the person who doesn't have as much desire probably feels a little overtaken, like it's all about you and your needs. And I feel like we're not even in this together. It's almost like I'm not even here. But I think a lot of women don't say that or men don't say that. They just say, I want it to be like both of us present here and join this. I don't want it to just be like just this interaction quick so you get what you need. Because if we could have honest conversations like that, and I don't think we're really great about that in our culture, and just be like really transparent about how you feel in the relationship, I think if the other person could hear that, they'd say, wow, they do want to be with me. They want this to be a mutual intimacy. Wow, that's good. Yeah, and to confront more your part in it not being that. So what often happens in the validation pursuit is you have somebody who's a pursuer and kind of take going over the middle point and into the other person's space, and then you have a person that's an avoider. But the more that one avoids, the more it pulls the other to pursue. But the more that one pursues, it more justifies the avoidance. So often sexual dynamics are this kind of warped, excessively high desire and excessively low desire because of that power struggle. And so, for example, I had a client who always hated kissing and her husband would start to kiss her and she'd pull away and then he'd come in more and she'd just feel like she was suffocating. And so I talked to them about that. And so the next time she just decided to not pull away, but to actually kiss him back and to actually engage herself in the interaction. Well, what happened is he immediately settled down and he started to receive more and he was less suffocating because she was joining him and meeting him in the middle. And so it just changed the dance right away without anybody saying a word. So low desire people are often more a part of their hungry, obsessive, high desire partners tendencies than they realize because the couple is in a dynamic. And so a lot of my work is helping people to see those dynamics and to break them by breaking their half of it. I love that. I mean, it makes sense too, right? If someone's trying to initiate intimacy and kissing is a good way. I mean, that's how we did it when we were dating, right? Holding hands, kissing, basic and then pretty soon it's, they probably know, oh, it's going to lead into this or like, I don't know if I want to do that right now. But if they can lean into it, it makes the other person less insecure. That's right. And exactly. Less hungry all the time. So I want to ask you too, if someone has had a negative sexual experience, how can they get past that to really experience the benefits of sexual intimacy? Well, this is easier to just answer in it than it is to do. But I think depending on the depth of that trauma or that experience, I think that if it's like trauma and it's sexual exploitation that happened to you, certainly it makes a lot of sense to get some help from a counselor, from a trauma therapist to help you work through the sense what happened and what happened to you. Because sort of to your earlier idea that a lot of times people then say, well, to be safe, I'm going to shut sexuality down. And it makes good sense that one would do that because it's so linked to the negative experience. And one of the things I learned from one of my mentors, Dr. Schnarch, is this idea that we want to belong to our sense of self more than we want to be sexual. And if we have to give up our sense of self to be sexual, we won't want it, right? Sort of back to that idea of feeling suffocated or that you're disappearing. You don't want that kind of sex. 
when somebody's been traumatized or had an experience that has hurt them, that they have the sense that sex is linked to me disappearing or me being harmed. So no, I don't want it. The Any good treatment is to help the person find their agency again and reclaim sexuality as something that is rightfully theirs and something that they get to define and they get to choose so that they're not just being acted upon. They can be an actor in their lives and they can create a meaning that they feel good about. So again, sexuality isn't just good or bad. It's what we do with it. And so the more you can help people claim a sense of reclaiming of something that belongs to them as a gift to them, and how do I want to be in relationship to this gift in my life that will make my life richer and better? Once you're in the driver's seat, then you don't have to compromise your sense of self in order to be a sexual being. Yeah, and also breaking away that negative association and creating a new framework around that. And in the church, we're always encouraged to withhold the sexual activity until marriage. And it makes sense to me. I mean, there is a psychological component to deep sexual intimacy that when you're not in a marital relationship and then it doesn't work out, that can be pretty traumatizing. So it almost seems like instead of this law of chastity mandate that seems so negative, it's really protective for you mentally and physically. Right. And so first of all, when we teach it from fear, we do ourselves a lot of disservice. And also the idea that marital sexuality is inherently good is also the wrong idea, right? So I think teaching it more from a frame of protection, protection of an unborn child, protection of the people, I think that's valuable. And this context of commitment as a place where you can really bring your full sexuality, bring your full self and create something good there. So it's not just premarital makes it bad, marital makes it good. No, there's a kind of a context in which good can start to be created and what you bring how you relate to yourself and your spouse, how you relate to this gift of your sexuality. Those are related to your spiritual development. I'm working on a book right now on this around spirituality and sexuality. And so much of being capable of intimate loving sexuality is to be able to receive that gift of our sexuality and be at peace with it and to not be tortured by our sexual natures and to have enough peace with ourselves to be able to love and be loved through our sexuality. That's the developmental task. And marriage is an exceptional context for that because it's based in a commitment that we're going to work together to learn how to do this well, to love well, to love through our sexuality well. And even though it can be challenging and stretches me, this is we're committed. We have two feet in and we're going to learn how to be better partners, friends, and lovers. And it makes sense to me too, just in waiting for marriage, it just protects them, like you were saying, from pregnancy and those other things. But just to have that strong emotional connection with such an intimate experience with someone you're going to be with forever, not someone who could break up with you next week or someone who could do a lot of damage. Right. Especially for females. I mean, kind of one of my arguments in my dissertation is that because women are more biologically vulnerable, the law of chastity does work 
more in women's favor. And a lot of women, the ones that thrived, talked about it in that way, that they saw that expectation as very, is protective of them. So they didn't relate to it as this like external rule that if they broke it, they were bad. They saw it as an, a cultural expectation, a, re, a religious expectation that was protective and allowed them to have the security to have a meaningful sexual relationship. And security. I think that's the key term. And we're not guaranteed when we get married that we'll stay married, but at least you're in a committed relationship we're taking a legal action to join with another person. I mean, that's a whole nother level of commitment. So I love everything we've talked about here because I just think it's such an important conversation that we need to be having in the church with women in the church and men in the church, especially with the way our culture is now in the world and we're sexualized by everything. And being able to talk about this and help people, hopefully there's the people who are listening have gleaned some things from here that can help them in their relationships and give them a greater understanding of why we do these things in our church culture, why we have the law of chastity, this protection for us, and that it's okay to allow yourself to be vulnerable with your partner when you're married. That's by God's design. Bodies are made to feel good by God's design. There's no shame in that. I think that can be really hard. I mean, I'm older, I'm 51, and I even have some friends that have just really struggled with sexual intimacy because of the culture and how they were raised. So we're trying to diffuse that to give people a little healthier (laughs) approach. Yeah. I mean, we have a kind of larger culture that can be sexually excessive, and then we can also in our own culture be sexually repressive. And I think both of those are anti-spiritual positions that there is a moderation, an integration that's really, really important. And it's more along the lines of how can I relate to this gift in a way that creates goodness and beauty and peace in my life? And that's the challenge, not just push it away. And that's what we do in our more immature minds is just push it away. But as you say, for those who did do that and often did it because that's what they were taught to do, it causes so much more suffering and unhappiness in their lives. So it's one of these gifts that you really, to be at peace, you must integrate and use in a way that creates good because suppression costs a lot, as does indulgence. Do you have any additional thoughts before we wrap up? I mean, I guess I would just say, I'm glad you're doing this podcast. I think it's part of our collective ideal to do our part to shift some of these messages in a healthier way because our theology really does provide for that greater understanding, right? That marriage is a place to learn how to love and a place where we can share and grow in our sexuality and our sexual relationship. And to not let those lesser understandings dictate and erode the beautiful theology that we actually have. And so the more aware we are, the more we can change the cultural conversation in a way that's good for our kids. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. And I want to thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. We encourage you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Simply click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Just follow the link in our bio for a tutorial on how to leave an iTunes review and comment. We read all your comments and it really helps us to grow. 
You can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Podcast What Now. We never say goodbye, we say what now. Find out by tuning into our next podcast. This has been a What Now podcast production.